direct your attention as we read. So uh, we're going to look at God's word, and then we'll sing Name of All Majesty, Ryan, and then we'll, prob- we'll be finished then. That would be okay. great. Uh, now, before I read, we should pray. There's a couple things that we need to pray for in particular this week. Cindy Smith is having surgery tomorrow, and um, uh, Jenny Guy is going to be induced on Thursday. So we're going to pray for those two. Uh, they're not both glad occasions. One is a glad, and one is, well, hopefully a relieving, relieving occasion. Uh, let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and uh, Lord, we acknowledge that you do all things well, and that whatever you ordain is right, and you have ordained that our meeting today would be interrupted. Lord, we are thankful to you for the servants in our congregation, the people on the building and finance committee, our children's teachers who are uh, flexing and adapting to this uh, challenging circumstance this morning. Uh, We thank you for these uh, men and women and how they uh, serve joyfully and energetically. Lord, this morning we come before you as a congregation and we pray for Cindy, who is going to have surgery tomorrow. Lord, we do thank you for equipment that makes and, and technology that makes surgery possible to try to relieve some of the aches and uh, troubles that we have. Thank you for your kindness in that. We do pray that you would provide relief for her through this. And we pray that you would care for her and Lonnie. You know the challenges that he faces. And uh, we pray that you would strengthen and provide for and care for them both this week. Lord, we thank you for the uh, glad uh, anticipation that we have of welcoming uh, the guy's baby on Thursday. Um, We pray for Jenny that you would care for and sustain her through uh, the process of being induced and the Uh, birth and delivery of this uh, precious girl. We thank you for her. Thank you you that we anticipate being able to see a picture of little Ellie next week when we meet together. Care for her. Uh, Grant Mike wisdom as he seeks to uh, care for and encourage his wife. Lord, this morning we think uh, too about those who are grieving that we know and love because of that car accident in um, Marduk earlier this week. Lord, there are are people in our church who are related to and love dearly those who were killed. Uh, Lord, uh, we pray that you would use the men and women in our congregation and the contact they have with these families, that they would speak words of grace and truth that would encourage and comfort them. For the service that is tomorrow, Lord, we pray... um, In anticipation of your word, it says that you care for those, you're near the brokenhearted and you care for those who trust in you. And we pray that that you would would demonstrate your strength and mercy to them. Thank you for your kindness to us. Enable us to focus clearly on your word. It is powerful. It is food for us. And we pray that you would sustain us by it today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, let's read. Shall we? 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel 
Samuel answered, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call you, go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me? Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there calling, as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sins he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. Therefore I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or by offering. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said to him, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you? Eli asked, do not hide it from me. May God deal with you. Be it ever so severely if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord Let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. So this is the story and the development of the book of how God moves this little boy, well, maybe this young boy, from not knowing him and not recognizing his word to being a proclaimer of his word to everyone so that everyone knew that Samuel was a prophet of the Lord. How that process happened is attested to here in this passage. That's what happens in this chapter. Uh, When we look at it, though, from a broader perspective, this story, this theme, the theme of this passage is about how God restores a broken relationship with his people. That's what he does over and over again in the Bible. God restores the broken relationship between himself and his people. He steps into the breach. He reaches across the divide. He welcomes the wayward home. That's what God does. Now, with an eye already on how this text might apply, I think this text might strike you in a couple of different ways. Maybe this passage will resonate or at least even challenge you, those of you who find yourselves in the middle of a conflict. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, I say, don't take the Lord's Supper if you have an unresolved conflict with somebody who's a part of the congregation. Members of the church have done that. I have had to do it once or twice. The Lord's Supper is an expression of our union with Christ and with one another. That's what 1 Corinthians teaches. But this necessity for reconciliation is rooted not just uh, in 1 Corinthians, it's in the rest of the Bible too. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. In this culture, 
culture of Palestine, to be someone's son was to bear their characteristics. It was to be like them. God is a peacemaker, and those who make peace are like God. Reconciliation is a family trait. Now, God's work in restoring broken relationships is why we seek to be reconciled with one another. It's why we have a posture of reconciliation toward one another. It's why we're ready and willing to forgive. It's a family trait for children of God. This posture doesn't answer all of the questions that inevitably come in the midst of conflict. Those questions are not impossible to answer from the Bible. They're easier, though, to answer once we have this posture. God reaches across the breach. Followers of Jesus reach across the breach. Now, this passage might strike you, too, from a different angle. If we move on from our horizontal interaction with one another and think about our relationship with God, there are some of you here this morning who struggle with whether or not it is possible, after all that you have done, to be forgiven. Sure, God, God, God heals broken relationships. You believe that. You've believed that for a long time. But there's that, that sin pattern in your life, and it's been part of your life for years and years and years. And sometimes you don't even want to quit at all. Is it possible that you have broken your relationship with God beyond repair? That that he's done with you? Verse 14 says he was done with Eli's house. There's no atonement, no sacrifice that can be made for them. Do you belong in Eli's family? Uh, This passage presses us horizontally on our relationships with one another. And it presses us, though, uh, vertically in our relationship with God. And I think that's the one that's most painful and the one that's most pressing. Well, let's walk through the text, shall we? We're going to move through the text under three headings. First, we're going to talk about the subject of the text, the what of the text. What does God do? God restores broken relationships with his people. That's what we're going to talk about first. Then we're going to move on to the how. How does God restore broken relationships? And we'll talk about the two ways that he does it here in this text. So first here, just this observation, God restores broken relationships with his people. And we should think about how this relationship is broken, this relationship that God has with the Israelites. It's broken, and the text tells us, because there's no communication between God and his people. It says, verse 1, the word of the Lord was rare, there were not many visions. Uh, he moves on from this bare statement, no visions, no word of the Lord, to a couple of images that are very easy to understand here. There were not many visions, and the text says that Eli is nearly blind. See, that, that's not hard to understand. Eli here is symptomatic of the people. No one is seeing God, and in fact, Eli, the high priest, can't see anything. He's been blind for a long time. He's so blind, actually, that he couldn't or would not see the problems in his own family. When the text uh, says that the word of the Lord is rare, it points to a failure on behalf of, of the priest's family because that's what the priests are supposed to do. They're supposed to speak God's word, but they're blind and they're silent. The relationship is broken. The other symbol here in this text is the lampstand. Uh, This lamp was in the temple itself, 
and it was supposed to be uh, shining brightly all night long. The lamp was supposed to be on all the time. And the message is that the lights in God's house are always on. God and Super 8 always leave the light on for you. It's what this, uh, this lamp, lamp is supposed to signify. He's always there. You can always go to God's house. He's always up waiting for you. But you notice the text says that the light is almost out. For some reason, th- th- these, uh, this time, they're filling the lamp in the morning with oil, and then they're not filling it again until it goes out, and then they fill it again, and, and, and um, um, it's flickering. The relationship between God and his people it's flickering. Now, just as an aside here, let me discuss this here. The language indicates that the house of the Lord, where Eli is, I'm seeing things behind me. Okay, the house of the Lord, no visions. The, uh, the house of the Lord here, um, well, they built a tabernacle in the book of Exodus, right? They built a tent for God's house. And then Solomon, later in 1 Kings, built the temple in Jerusalem out of stone. It appears here that there's some sort of building here in Shiloh where the Ark of the Covenant is. We don't know much about it, but it talks about there being a door in it. Just some sort of structure. Um, Samuel, it says he's sleeping there, except if it's really where the Ark of the Covenant is, Samuel's not allowed in there, so he should not be sleeping in there. Um... I don't know, but I do know that the text is clear here that Samuel is closer to God's lamp than Eli is. It's important. So there's this broken relationship. No communication from God. The priests who should be speaking for God are blind. The lampstand that represents God's presence is flickering. Another sign of this broken family, broken relationship is found in the broader context that the priestly family has been cursed. Eli's family has been cursed. They've committed an unpardonable sin. And in the midst of it, though, God speaks and he says, Samuel, Samuel, think with me for a minute about how the original readers of this book would hear this. Remember that Samuel, as it's collected in the Bible, is part of a seven-volume set going all the way from Joshua to Second Chronicles. It tells us how the people of God entered the land, how they conquered the land, and how they lost the land. And that story and the stories that are in there are terrible. You can't read some of them in public, it seems like. There are stories of uh, sexual perversion and violence and child sacrifice and neglect and abuse of the poor and idolatry and civil war. Moses had made it clear to them that if they did those things, God would send them packing out of the land. And they must have picked up Samuel and wondered to themselves, can we ever go back home again? Will it ever be possible for us to be forgiven? And they read in chapter 3 where God steps in and says, Samuel, Samuel. The Bible invites consistently and constantly all of us to come home. We have a broken relationship with God too. The Bible describes it in a multiplicity of, uh, of ways. This chapter emphasizes three ways that, that their relationship with, with God is broken. There's no hearing of the word of the Lord. They're blaspheming God by taking what is rightfully his and misusing it or using it for their own purposes. That's what Hophni and Phineas are doing. And they're not restraining those who do those sins. There's no word of the Lord no uh, blaspheming God and no stopping those who are blaspheming God. Does this sound like the basic conditions of our world? 
you, I, you'll probably agree with me. It just seems to me that our public discourse seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. Ecclesiastes warns us, it says, don't look back on the, the days that have come before and say those were the good old days. Ecclesiastes says that's not very wise to do. But it just seems like uh, it's toxic, isn't it? Everything is spin, alternative facts, fake news. That's the way everything is. Um, I, I spent a few um, minutes over the last couple of weeks watching clips on YouTube of the confirmation hearings. And, and they're, it's astounding to me how they're all titled. Somebody posts these online and they all, they're all titled with bombastic language. Senator decimates nominee. Questions leave prospective cabinet member dumbfounded. Watch this nominee give the senator his due for his stupid questions. That's all the way they're titled. That's all they, all they are. There's, none of them are titled Reasoned Debate Between Senator and Cabinet Nominee. <laughs> none, none of things like that. The issues really come forth in this Senate hearing. There's, none of them are called that, that way. That, toxic is, that toxicity, I think, is one symptom of our disregard for God because it's more important to score political points or try to make somebody look foolish than it is to revere him or honor him. But God is the one who restores broken relationships. He takes the initiative here. This is his disposition toward us. This is what he does. Jesus said he came to seek and to save the lost. Here's one of the key differences between Christianity and all other religions. Probably you have heard this at some point in time. All other religions are about the efforts that human beings must make to reach God. Christianity, in contrast, is about what God has done to rescue us. Maybe some of you doubt the possibility of your own reconciliation with God because you've gotten confused about this somehow. You've forgotten this. You're trying to measure your own sin and try to figure out if what God offers is good enough. But the Bible teaches us that that it's not about measuring our sin, it's about receiving God's rescuing work. Let's imagine for this, if we, we could do this for just a moment, we, we've thought about this before. Let's, let's line up in our church uh, worst sinner to least worst sinner. All right? Let's line up. I don't have the records. I don't, not with me, at least. I don't keep them. <laughs> I, don't ha- I don't have the records. We don't have any, there's no list, but let's see if we can figure this out somehow, right? Worst, well, first you have to figure out which, who's the worst sinner in your family. Just line them up. Then, then we do it in the church, right? Worst to least. I don't know who would be first. Um, maybe, maybe if we would do that, let's do it the whole county. Line up all of Lancaster County by sin. Worst sinner, least sinner. Who's, who's, who's going to be first in line? Well, we could do it in the state, couldn't we? If we line up. If we take all humanity through has ever lived throughout all human history and line them up, I actually know who's going to be first. He said it. Who's going to be first? Paul. He said he is the chief sinner. He's the worst sinner who has ever lived, Paul says, it of himself. So if nothing else, you're number two in that line. Right? 
Paul says, God forgave me, and it's a sign that if God can forgive me, he can forgive anyone. If you're number two in line, if God can forgive number one, here you stand number two. His mercy is rich and free. You're not holier than God. You're not more righteous. Your standards are not higher than God. So that if God can even forgive Paul, he can forgive even you. Now we have to think, we have to think though about Eli's family, don't we? There's places in the Bible, there's a few of them, there's not a lot of them. There's places in the Bible where God says, enough! Repentance is impossible. This is one of those times. Have you reached that point? You should take this seriously. You should read this and you recognize in the Bible there are no reasons to delay. If you read this and you think to yourself, well, I'll repent someday. Someday I'll get serious about, about uh, the Bible and about the gospel. That is a foolish choice. One of the key symptoms, though, that you have reached the point where it is impossible for you to repent is that you don't care about it. Hophni and Phinehas didn't listen to their father. They didn't care what he said. Pharaoh, God said enough to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was angry with God about this. There's a rich man. Jesus tells a story about him in Luke chapter 16. He dies and he goes to hell. He's in torment there and he still thinks the world revolves around him. He has no notion or no care about the grace of God and his own. he just cares about his own self. If you care, if you still care, you can come home. Now, this disposition from God informs our attitude toward one another, especially when conflict comes. The Bible even teaches, actually, that there are times when Christians have to cultivate conflict. There are times when faithfulness to God means that we start fights. Fights isn't the best word, maybe. There's times when a church is responsible under God with the authority entrusted to us by Christ when we are removed from membership, someone who's a part of our church, when we excommunicate them, a fellow believer. We don't do it on a whim. We don't do it gleefully, but we do it definitively. And what is our disposition when when we do this most grievous act? Not hate. We don't hate people. Not cutting them off. Always willing to welcome them home. This is our disposition. Reconciliation is a family trait. This is what Christian people do. Even when the Bible demands us to be stern and forceful, and when we echo some of the condemnations of the apostles, we don't write people off. God restores broken relationships with his people. That's such good news. Now, we'll move on here, and we're going to spend less time on what remains The passage here affirms that God restores broken relationships with his people. How does he do it? Two ways. First, God restores broken relationships with his people through his word. He restores broken relationships with his people through his word. The word of the Lord is central in this passage. At the beginning, there's no word from the Lord. Visions are rare. And at the end, though, the Lord reveals himself to Samuel through his word. And then Samuel speaks his word to the people. Samuel's recognized as a word speaker from God. There's no movement, regardless of its name, that can lay claim to God's blessing unless God's word is central. 
Uh, remember 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. I will honor those who honor me, but those who dishonor me, despise me, will be disdained. One of the ways that we honor God is by honoring his word. Unless God's word has the controlling, the controlling interest in your life, you may be an admirer of Jesus, but you are not a follower of Jesus. It's a mark of God's kindness. It is a mark of God's kindness to us that one of the hallmarks of our church is that we value the reading and teaching of God's word. It's a heritage I inherited from my predecessor. It's one I hope to pass on uh, to the person who follows me. We read a lot, we read God's word a lot when we gather together because it's the way that God speaks to us. When new members join our church, I tell them on the basis of Galatians 1 that they have a responsibility for ensuring that the word is preached in our congregation. It's all of our responsibility as members of the church. We hold one another accountable for this. D.A. Carson recently wrote a fine article, a very good article actually, describing some of the subtle ways in which churches that love the Bible can sometimes undermine the authority of the Bible. Um, He he mentions ten ways. I just want to repeat three of them that he mentioned. You can undermine the Bible by apologizing for the Bible. Acting as if it's embarrassing, some of the things that it says. It's embarrassing that the Bible talks about human sexuality this way, or it's embarrassing that the Bible talks about God's judgment this way. It's embarrassing that God talks about money like this. But I, I sometimes I've, I've done that, I think, from the pulpit. I think I've done it in an effort to try to decrease the tension in the room. You know, um, if you're skeptical about this hard truth, well, you should understand that so am I. But actually, apologizing for the Bible that way has the unintended consequence of communicating that that we're more reasonable than God, that we're more just than he is, we're more gentle than he is. I don't know why God's so harsh here, but, you know, that's what he says, so we just got to believe it, as if I know better than God does. You can undermine the Bible by apologizing for it. You can undermine the Bible by avoiding parts of it. One of the reasons that we practice moving systematically through books of the Bible is because we want to wrestle with all of the text. There are chapter after chapter of genealogies at the beginning of 1 Chronicles. Someday, if Jesus doesn't come back, we're going to walk through 1 Chronicles. Chapter after chapter. This is when I'll ask somebody else to come and read all those names. They'll be wonderful. God loves those chapters of the Bible. I'll explain why and how sometime, but uh, uh, we're not going to skip it. Sometimes we undermine the Bible by apologizing for it, by avoiding parts of it. Sometimes we undermine the Bible by not giving the Bible the right to set its agenda, its own agenda. Uh, When you come to the text with your questions and your questions alone, you'll find answers there, but your questions are shaped by your concerns, by your world. So they're shaped by the fact that I want my marriage to be better, so help me. Or uh, I want my personal pain to be uh, useful in my life. Or I want to know about the relationship between the Bible and science, so I'm going to come and ask the Bible these questions. And the Bible has answers, but the problem is that the Bible actually wants to set its own agenda. You know, the Bible says a lot about how blessed and awesome it is that God is triune. That is amazing. I have never come to the Bible with a question like that. Let's let the Bible set its own 
agenda. God reveals himself through his word. It's how he restores broken relationships with his people. One more way, though, that God does this. God restores his broken relationships with his people through those who honor him, through people who honor him. Um, We see this in the text here in this comparison between Samuel and Eli and the comparison between Samuel and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, and then actually the comparison that's here between Samuel and Moses. Uh, Let me talk about them just for a moment. In this story, did you notice Samuel and Eli switch places? At the beginning, Eli has to teach Samuel how to listen to God's word. But at the end of the passage, it's Samuel who delivers God's message to Eli. Back in chapter 2, Eli is sitting at the door of the temple, of this building. He's sitting at the door of the Lord's house. He's sitting there. And then actually it tells us Hophni and Phinehas are uh, having adulterous relationships with the women who are at the door. The door is important. And then Samuel, at the end of this passage, throws the doors open. Notice the difference here. God's word is open, and he's ready to speak. Eli and Samuel. Now, let's think about Samuel and Hophni and Phinehas. Between chapters 2 and 3, the passage says that both Samuel and Hophni and Phinehas, neither of them, none of the three of them, knew the Lord. Samuel, because of his youthful inexperience, he's naive, he doesn't know yet. Hophni and Phinehas, because they don't care to know God, they disregard him, they don't want to know him. And Samuel doesn't know the Lord, and he's still serving as best he can. Hophni and Phinehas don't know the Lord, and they're blaspheming and cursing God. Now think about this here. God calls Samuel, Samuel doesn't recognize it's God, God hasn't spoken to him yet, and he gets up in the middle of the night and goes to Eli three times. This long-suffering kid. You know, I've been in a house where children cry in the middle of the night, right? And and the voice comes, and I always think to myself, oh, no. Now, if my wife were here, she would would tell the truth on me that the response that I had was more of (laughs) an than anything else. They cry, oh, no. Samuel pops out of bed, runs over to Eli. Why, here I am. What do you need? Go back to bed. Second time. What would you say the second time? Oh. Hops up, he goes again. Third time, he goes. Uh, Hophni and Phinehas. Samuel's so responsive to listen. Hophni and Phinehas, their father had spoken to them about their sin and threatened them with God's judgment, and they didn't listen. They didn't care. There is uh, somebody in this passage who is interested in honoring God, has a keen eye toward it, his name is Samuel, and there's a whole family, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, who have an eye just on using the Lord. They don't care. There's also a comparison here in this passage between Moses and Samuel. This lampstand that Samuel is near is carved in the shape of a tree. You might almost say that it is in the temple a burning bush. And, and, and God calls to Samuel twice using his name, uh, just like Moses. Samuel, Samuel, and, and Samuel answers just like Moses. Here I am. There's no named prophet in the Bible between, no named male prophet in the Bible between Moses and Samuel, and no prophet of the, which the Bible says he was attested by the Lord. That's in uh, verse um, 
20, attested as a prophet by the Lord. Moses and Samuel are the only ones attested like this. And actually then David will become attested as king too. Who is the one honoring the Lord through whom God is going to restore this broken relationship? It's Samuel and Samuel's mother, Hannah, who was honoring the Lord. And it's through her son that's given to her in answer to her prayer that God is going to restore this broken relationship. Will you be someone who honors the Lord in your home as a mom or as a dad in the hallways of your school before your peers at work? Actually, I'm getting ahead of myself, well ahead of myself. God works through those who honor him. This has always been his practice. He promised Eve that one of her descendants, it would be through one of her descendants, her seed, that God would uh, um, fight back, free the family from the oppression of the serpent. It was Abraham who interceded with God for Lot. Moses represented the Israelites before God. And here we have Samuel. And then we're going to have David. We'll learn about him. And then finally, the Lord Jesus himself. He is the one through whom God repairs this relationship um, that we have broken. He's come to seek and save the lost. He is why we can be reconciled with God And he is the reason that we reconcile with one another. How does God restore this broken relationship? Through his own anointed king. And we honor him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we are thankful to you for this word that you have given to us. We're thankful to you for this winsome and wonderful story about a young boy who is anxious to listen and and hear from Eli, and yet you're the one who called him. It's, it's a, a delightful turn. Thank you, Lord, that you have restored the relationship that we broke, and you have done it through the Lord Jesus on the cross. It's such good news. You reach across the breach. You fix what we have broken. You are trustworthy, Uh, You are compassionate. Lord, I do pray that you would make us men and women who are reconcilers ourselves and that you would encourage those of us who walk through doubtful and discouraging times, that you would encourage us that you have repaired the breach through the Lord Jesus. He's so kind. We thank you, Father. We ask that you would Um, teach us to listen and to follow and to honor you and your anointed king. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.